Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin and Global Finance Podcast with me, Jason Dean. Here we talk about all things Bitcoin and all things financial and try and make sense of them. I've got something a little different today as this is an audio recording of one of the public webinars I ran recently which is designed for Bitcoin beginners. It's based around a visual presentation but luckily it translates to audio pretty well. So if you're a total Bitcoin beginner, this one is ideal for you. Even better, towards the end, I give out a code that will allow you to claim £10 worth of free Bitcoin on the Luno app to get you started. So enjoy, and as usual, if you'd like to get in touch with me directly, I'll be giving some contact details at the end of this podcast. Okay, I think we've probably got most people in. I mean, the last few sessions we have had people come in still quite late, so uh, but obviously we're already a minute and a half in, so we'll get started. Um, and it's great to have you all here. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm sure you've guessed by now, my name is uh, Jason Dean. I'm a crypto evangelist at Luno, which is basically a very flowery, posh way of saying that I talk to people about uh, cryptocurrency in general and Bitcoin in particular. And... I suppose in terms of credibility of how I get to talk to you today, um, I've been involved with Bitcoin now for quite some time, not right from the very start. I missed that bit, unfortunately, um, but I did see, come across it uh, fairly early on about uh, 2014, sort of poked it with a stick for a couple of years and then got uh, fully involved after that. Um, and then, of course, at some stage I had to explain um, to my mum what I was doing. So, of course, This became a bit of a problem because my mum at the time was uh, mid-70s, didn't use the internet, didn't have a mobile phone, still doesn't actually, and didn't see the point of either. Uh, So trying to explain something like Bitcoin as a concept uh, was tricky. In fact, I think it's fair to say that neither of us came out of that conversation particularly well. So as a result, I wrote a book called How to Explain Bitcoin to Your Mum. It's my second book. first one was on finance. And really with her in mind. Um, So in other words, if my mum could understand it, no disrespect to her, then anyone could understand it. And the book did quite well. And then as time went on, basically I found that I was spending more and more of my time introducing people to Bitcoin uh, as a concept. And when this role came up at Luno, of course, it made perfect sense to to join forces. It's a great company after all. And um, so now that's what I'm um, doing. I'm also a top writer on medium.com. So if you do use medium, look me up at Jason A. Dean. My areas are Bitcoin finance and investing, uh, probably unsurprisingly. I'm also a Bitcoin miner. Now, for a lot of you, that won't mean anything. Don't worry about that. It just means I contribute to the network. Um, you can look me up on LinkedIn, uh, Jason A. Dean, and I'm very active on Twitter as well, Jason A. Dean. So uh, by all means, look me up there. As you probably already realized, I like to talk about this subject. Um, so I'm happy to answer any questions that we don't get through um, today. Of course, I own and use Bitcoin regularly, literally all the time. So that probably won't come as a surprise to you. And I'm very passionate about the subject, as you've probably picked up already. And hopefully by the end of this presentation, you will be a little bit uh, as, as well. Now, you will have some questions. In fact, I can see I've got some come through already, which is great. But I'm going to deal with all of those at the end, because in many cases, I'll answer a lot of the common questions as we go through. I'll be talking for about half an hour usually. Sometimes it goes on to 40 minutes if we get a bit wordy. I'll try and avoid doing that. Uh, And then we'll go to like an AMA session, Ask Me Anything. And please feel free to ask me any question you like about what we've talked about or opinions on other things. I'm very, very happy to talk about it. And I'll stay as long as you want me to. So please don't worry about that. So let's have a look at what we're going to be talking about. 
I should mention, by the way, just to reassure you that this is not a technical presentation in any way, shape or form. Um, so there are there is a lot of technology that runs behind um, Bitcoin that makes the Bitcoin network work. There's a lot of maths involved, a lot of really complex stuff. But the reality is you don't need to know all this and you don't need to understand it or to use Bitcoin or understand it as a concept. And the analogy I always use is a bit like uh, driving a car. So um, when you get in the car, you turn the key or press the button, whatever you do, and you uh, drive to where you're going, you get out of the car, lock it up, do your thing. You don't even think about how that car works. You, you know, you may not even really fully understand exactly how that engine is delivering power to the wheels. And to most, you don't need to either. It just does what it does, but we can still drive the car. And Bitcoin's kind of the same. You can still use it quite happily without having to understand all that technology that's behind it. I'll also be giving away some free Bitcoin at the end if you want it, so you can get yourself started on this and have a little play with it, but we'll come to that later on. So let's have a look at what we're going to talk about. Well, we're going to deal with the big one first. So um, what is, even is a Bitcoin anyway? So we do that first just so that we, we get it out of the way. We're not sitting there the whole time thinking don't really understand what it is anyway. Um, welcome, by the way, to those of you who just arrived. Great to see you all here. Um, it's, uh, it's good to see so many people coming through. The next thing is I'm going to go back then and give some context. So how did this come about? And how will it affect you? Because you seem to hear about it a lot these days. So what actually is going on and how come we're all suddenly talking about it and how come it seems relevant now? And we're going to do some context with that. So we're going to do a little bit of history and do some context on it. And then we're going to look at what happens next, because as you may have noticed, the world has changed dramatically in the last few months and the financial landscape is now completely different to what it was at the start of the year. And so financial commentators and analysts like me are in full demand at the moment as you try and make sense of what's happening. And um, it's not an easy task, I can assure you. But we can, there are some things we can draw from it and we can, we can talk about those a little bit. So let's start with the first question. Back in the days when I used to do this live, I used to, uh, remember those days when we used to have meetings? Um, I used to ask people for, for a definition of what people think Bitcoin is. And the reality is most people got pretty close. Um, so they usually came up with collectively that it was some form of money. And at this stage, that's all I want you to think about. So Bitcoin is another currency. So where you have your dollars and your pounds and your euros and all that kind of stuff, just at the moment, tag Bitcoin onto the end of that. So dollars, pounds, euros and Bitcoin. It's another currency that you can convert your home currency into. Okay, so that's the easiest thing to think about right now. We can come back to more detail in a, a little bit later on. However, there's one thing I do want to make clear on this. There is a very specific definition of money which economists use, and it's quite appropriate. And we need to understand them, not in great detail, but just very quickly. Medium of exchange, that is something that you and I agree to use as a form of settlement of debt between us. Okay, it doesn't have to be money, it just happens to be that money is universally accepted by us, but it could be anything, it's something that we agree. The other thing is we need to be able to account for that somehow. So it's no good saying some money. We need to say, right, well, that's 10 pounds or $10 or five euros, whatever it is. There needs to be some kind of way of measuring it. And the third thing is it needs to have a store of value. Now, obviously we hope our currencies have a store of value we're going to examine that myth shortly but there's some truth to it but if you're using something else you know like seashells 
was, was used in the past that stores its value. But if you're using something you know, like blancmange, that's not going to work as a form of money, even if it fits in the other two categories. So it needs to fit all three aspects of that. If this is the case, if Bitcoin is money, why do we need this extra form of money? I mean, as I say, we've got euros, pounds, dollars. Why do we need this extra thing? Well, the short answer is really is that money itself and the world have always constantly evolved. And Bitcoin is kind of the next natural step from, from where we are now. Now, that might not make much sense at the moment, but let me give you some context here. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to run through about 5,000 years of human history in about two minutes, okay? So try and, try and uh, keep up on this. Some of you will know some of this, but as we've done these um, things over the, the last few months in particular, there's quite a lot of information that most people aren't really aware of, or haven't really thought about. So we always add this in now as a context to why Bitcoin is important. So let's have a look. Let's go right back to the early days. Um, first of all, you've got a picture there of a potato and a cabbage. Very simple. Before there was money, if you were a potato farmer and you wanted some cabbages, you had to go and see the cabbage farmer and swap some potatoes for your cabbage, which was very handy if the potato man liked cabbages and vice versa. If they didn't, you had a bit of a problem. So then you'd have to go and see the parsnip man and do a deal and come back and it got very messy and complicated. It's something that economists call coincidence of needs. And with barter, that doesn't always happen. And you can't help thinking that the people who had, you know, quite forceful personalities probably did better than those who didn't. You don't know for sure, but I suspect that's the case. Anyway, barter worked for a long time because there was really no other way to do it, but it was messy. Now, fortunately, pretty early on, we discovered something called gold. And humans, we love gold. Um, it's something very cool about it. It's sexy, it's blingy, you can do stuff with it. Everyone seems to want it. It's scarce enough to make it valuable. Um, so it fitted really well. So this idea then of getting barter and just using this universal concept to exchange goods and services came about. So in other words, you wouldn't have to go and see the potato man now and give him some cabbages or vice versa. You say, I'll give you a bit of gold and you can give me some of that and you can go around and buy whatever you wanted. Good system, not ideal, but good because um, there's problems with counterfeiting. Um, also, there's problems with the purity. There's problems with, is this chunk of lower purity worth more than the smaller chunk of higher purity? There's all kinds of issues involved with this. So pretty early on, central governments, monarchies, any kind of leadership role system that evolved would take that gold, make it into little round um, kind of things that we call coins now, put some markings on it and some denominations and everyone could use that. And that worked pretty well for quite a long time. Obviously, there's no banks, so you had to keep your gold with you pretty much all the time. And that could be problematic as well, particularly if you had a lot of it. And everyone was happy with this system for quite quite a, a long time until something happened around the ninth century and this is what we call flying cash for very romantic reasons and very mythical reasons but I just love the the name of this so I like to keep it in and the best way to describe this is imagine yourself this this probably isn't that easy but imagine yourself as a ninth century merchant you've just pulled into the port in China with some products that you're going to trade some silks or spice whatever it is that you're going to trade and you see your normal wholesaler and he looks at your goods and he says, oh, yep, yep, that's good. I'll give you 10,000 gold pieces as usual. And you agree a deal. And instead of giving you 10,000 gold pieces, he gives you 
little piece of paper or parchment looks a bit like the image on the screen there and says, there you go, there's your 10,000 gold pieces. Now, of course, from your perspective, you've never seen this before. You like the gold pieces because you know you can see them, you can touch them, you're pretty good at working out which ones are fake and which ones aren't, so you're happy with that. Instead, this guy's giving you a piece of parchment that says, if you go to this place in town, you can put hand the parchment and they'll give you your gold. Saves us carrying it about, small, safe, secure, blah, blah, blah. Well, ninth century China, there's no central information dissemination system so how do you know you can trust this guy to do this? So you can imagine this leap of faith of switching to this system must have been massive. And I mention this because it's kind of relevant to where we are today. And we'll come back to that shortly. But yeah, we do know now, of course, eventually, however many years it took, people adopted the system of using the flying cash. Called flying cash, incidentally, because, so the myth says, um, when the merchants got back on their ships, of course, if they had gold, the gold would stay on the decks. If they put the uh, the, the paper currency on their desk uh, on their decks, uh, as soon as the wind came, it would blow it away. So that was the story behind flying cash. We don't really know if it's true, but we love the we love the idea. Um, but of course, it didn't take the merchants long to work out that actually they didn't need to go and get the gold every time. They could just use the notes. So they could say the 10,000 gold piece note, give it to someone that you owe 10,000 gold pieces to. So there's all that mucking about, go and get the gold. And of course, you can see where this is going um, because the next obvious step was that we would issue notes that were backed by gold. And this is pretty much how it worked for years. And really, quite recently, it, the system was still running. So have a look at this. So if you're outside the UK, and I can see a few of you are, this is a current British £5 note. And I've blown it up here on the screen. But even though I've blown up this big on the screen, you can see that the words, I promise to pay the bearer on demand, the sum of £5, are very, very small, even on the screen this size. And that's because that doesn't really mean anything these days. Um, but it did back in the day. It's there now really for tradition, and, and that's about it. Um, but back in the day, you could take your £5 note into the Bank of England, and they would swap your note for five gold sovereigns, real gold sovereigns, because our notes were still backed. Because by the, 15th, by the 16th, 17th century, pretty much everyone was doing this anyway, pretty much every country. And right up to 1931, you could swap your notes for coins, gold coins in this country. However, now you can't do that, of course. And there might be some economists on this issue, so I'm going to really simplify this just to go through it quickly. So don't have a go at me if I, if I skip a couple of the details here. But basically, 1931, we pegged our currency to the dollar, which was still backed by gold. Then we had something called the Bretton Woods Agreement, 1944, which kind of enhanced that a little bit. And we ran that system until 1971, when President Nixon, remember him, he closed the gold window, basically said, right, no more, we're not, we're not backing these currencies anymore with US gold uh, for lots of economic reasons that we don't need to go into today. So what that meant from 1971, all our currencies, all our currencies around the world, all started to float against each other, completely free of being backed by gold. Now that means in a stroke, our currencies became what's called fiat currencies. Now this is from the Latin, that means let it be done. It's like a decree from a personal authority saying, right, this, this, these notes have value because we say they have value. Or, as, or to put it more cynically, the men with guns say it has value. And what that means is if, we, if I went into, say, let's, who we got here, let's say I went into uh, Barbara's coffee shop 
and I bought a latte from her. Um, and that latte cost five pounds. Um, uh, it's a very posh latte. It's, it's a very expensive coffee shop, but I, I hear it's worth it. And I gave her the five pound for the latte. And Barbara would accept it knowing full well that there was no intrinsic value to that five pounds. So she couldn't take it and swap it for gold or anything like that. It has value because she believes it has value. And I believe it has value. And she also knows that someone else will accept that note of her for the same value, even though it actually has no real value, it's just a bit of paper or a bit of plastic. So that's quite an astonishing thought. Our currencies only work on belief. They're not backed by anything. And that's quite a shock for some people, um, but mostly because we just don't really think about it. We just think the money's there, it has value. Well, it doesn't. It has value only because we believe it has value. And what you've got to remember is this is really recent. This has happened less than 50 years ago. So this is still quite new. We're still learning how this works. And there's all kinds of aspects involved with this that we still haven't got to grips with. So it's a fascinating thought. I think this is so new in our evolution. And of course, the next step in this is really it's, it's digital. Everything now is digital. So if you uh, work, if you're old enough to be working in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, you may remember that you used to have to go to the cash office on a Friday afternoon and you get a little envelope with cash in it and that'll be your wages. Of course, we don't do that anymore. You basically um, turn up, um, you do your job, you go home and your money's paid into your account at the end of the month. It's just numbers on the screen, it doesn't really mean anything. To us it does, but they're just numbers on the screen. And you don't even really see that because then you pay your mortgage or your rent or your gas, electricity with these same numbers that don't seem to mean anything. Of course, we know we can go to the cash point and take the cash out if we want, but actually very few of us do that now, even though we know that we could. We are used to a digital system completely. So if you look at the little pictures I put in the bottom right hand there, I've just given you right hand corner, I've just given you a little indication of how far the digital thing has come. So even a few years ago, you went to a car park, you had to pay with coins, right? If you didn't have them, you had to walk around, have you got change of this, have you got change of that, or go to a shop, and they wouldn't give you the change unless you bought something. But we don't do that now. We just use our phone or a card or NFCs, whatever it is. We do the same for vending machines, even small transactions. So we don't even really need the cash anymore. We're kind of already in a digital environment. We're kind of used to it. So that's how far we've come. But we've, we're kind of now in this weird situation where probably for the first time, the world has moved on faster than our financial evolution has. And this has exposed some problems. And some of these we already know. So let's have a quick look. Remember, this is just context to how Bitcoin has got here. It'll all make sense in, the, in a minute, I promise. So the first thing is, with our current financial system, if you don't have a gold standard, you can print as much money as you like. We have something called a fractional reserve system, um, which means banks can lend money they don't have. And we can basically just produce money as and when we want to, because that's a feature of fiat currency. And it's done a lot of good things, don't get me wrong. So it's allowed us to make huge advances as, as a species. Um, it's funded projects has probably, you know, allowed us to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and all, we, all that happens is we pay for that with a bit of inflation. We try and keep that inflation under control, but basically that's how it works. But the trouble is the more you print, the more inflation you get because that's the law of supply and demand, right? So you keep increasing the supply, demand stays roughly where it is, you're gonna decrease the value. 
And we've seen this happen, of course, pretty much every country at some stage in history has had some kind of collapse of currency for various different reasons. Um, not just hyperinflation, there are other things that can cause it. But recently, we'll probably all remember Zimbabwe's one, where you had the hundred trillion dollar notes. Uh, you know, incredible. These signs of people holding up saying starving trillionaires. A ridiculous situation where confidence is lost in the currency. We're seeing it now with the Argentinian peso and the uh, Venezuelan um, Bolivar. I, I can't even say the words today, but in those countries. Um, and we're now seeing, of course, what's going on in the world in, in what we would say traditionally stable countries as well. Things are changing fast. Um, I mean, when I started doing these presentations, the US debt mounted was 22 trillion. Uh, I think it's just past 26, maybe 27 trillion. So that is fast. Things are changing really quickly. We know it's all unsustainable. We know that. We know we're going to have to deal with it at some point. Um, but we're all hoping, you know, it won't be so bad. Well, we'll see. The next thing is centralised. Again, lots of advantages to a centralised system, but there are lots of disadvantages too. Um, main one is, with a centralised system, the banks are the gatekeepers. So they own the game. Uh, they make the rules. Um, if they don't like you, or if you're not profitable, then they won't deal with you. It's as simple as that. So if, if you set up a business um, and you go and see them for a loan and they don't like the business, they won't give you a loan. Uh, if they don't, really don't like you, they won't even give you the facilities. Um, but what are you going to do? It's a centralised system. That's it. And this is probably why there's about 2 billion people are unbanked in the world right now. That's 2 billion with a B. Um, now, admittedly, this is mostly developing countries where there's a lack of infrastructure, but even countries like Germany have around 1 million unbanked at the moment, which is an astonishing thought. The other thing is, because it is a global monopoly, all the transactions you make are at their mercy. Now, this is changing now with, with new services coming in. But because up until quite recently, there was no other way to transfer money about, there was no real incentive to develop and improve systems beyond what they had to. So take something like Swift, which we all use to transfer money about. Really old-fashioned system designed in the 60s. It's been updated, computerized, but the system itself, the process, is still pretty much the same. So it's slow, it's expensive. In banking terms, it's got quite a high failure rate. You know, we could do better than this. And of course, the other thing, kind of the big one, I suppose, is trust. Because at the end of the day, we humans are rubbish with money. I mean, we really shouldn't be allowed it. Um, and if you put money in a centralized system controlled by us imperfect humans, guess what's going to happen? People are going to abuse it. And this has happened always in history, and it probably always will happen in history until we manage to evolve this out over a few million years. Um, so corruption is, is, is a problem. And to emphasize that, have a look at this. So these are fines paid in billions, with the B again, up until last year by banks, so cumulative fines these are, um, for things like um, rate fixing, money laundering, and all kinds of other manner of illicit activities. So Bank of America, $76.1 billion paid in fines. That is massive. And of course, we all know they're still doing it because they make more money on the profits than they pay in the fines. And of course, I'm not going to single out Bank of America because they all do it and we all know they do it. We see it in the paper all the time. And that's the problem with the centralised um, system. But the main problem, despite all of this, is that even though we live in an increasingly digital world, the financial system hasn't 
yet um, caught up because it's, if you think about it, it's crazy. I can WhatsApp someone on the space station for free, but if I want to send a couple of hundred quid to someone from where I'm sitting, a couple of hundred miles away, it's slow, it's expensive, and I have to get permission, you know, indirectly or directly to do that. That is a ridiculous situation. So the world is kind of ready for the next stage. And this is kind of where we say, right, well, look, into Bitcoin, really. So now it makes sense. You can see what the limitations are. You can see the evolution. Money doesn't stay the same. It evolves constantly as humans evolve. So Bitcoin is kind of the next step in all of this. So let's have a look about it. We know it's money. Why is it different? What's the important here? What's the important aspects? Well, first of all, it's probably been around a little bit longer than you think. It started in 2009, although it was developed in 2008. And of course, some of you may recognize that date as well, because in 2008, we had another financial crisis, the credit crunch, uh, which of course now is, is no more than a footnote in history compared to what we're doing now. If you look at the graphs of things like quantitative easing, money printing, are going on now they're now so big the um the chart for 2008 just barely registers a speed bump in in the chart so but it came from that environment it was like okay let's look at an alternative and someone or an individual a man a woman or a group we don't know but they know we know they had a pseudonym called satoshi nakamoto and this personal person has developed this code wrote a white paper and basically released it into the world and said, right, develop the system. Um, it's very clever, it does a lot of cool stuff here. You go and develop it, you take it on further and make it work. So in other words, he, and he then disappeared. He, she or they disappeared, never to be seen or heard from again. And in a weird way, it was kind of the best thing they ever did for this because it meant that there could never be an accusation that one person was in control of this currency. So they disappeared, they handed it over, and since it's been developed by anyone who wants to be involved, it's totally open source, you and I can get involved, we can, we, we can do anything we like with the currency, of course we all have to agree by consensus, but it's an open source project which is not owned by any individual, company, or country. Okay, so that is a very, very important point. The other idea behind this is it's completely universal. So whereas you've got your euros, you can use them in various different countries, well, of course, if you still go to America, you can't use it. And there are rules about taking money there anyway. With Bitcoin, you can send your Bitcoin to anyone, anywhere, at any time, directly, without using a third person. So in other words, kind of the closest analogy, I suppose, is an email. So you and I can send an email directly. You actually use still a central body to manage that for us, even though it goes by lots of different hops. But there are other people we kind of rely on uh, to some extent for that to work. But imagine now you could just do it directly, say between our mobile phones directly. Um, so I could send money to any of you anywhere or back without crossing any borders, by crossing any borders without permission and without asking a bank's permission to do it. Okay, so I can trade with someone in Puerto Rico and they can trade with someone in Africa and they could do it all without having any traditional banking facilities. So this is, a, this is the first time this has been possible in human history. The other thing is, these transactions can't be stopped by anyone other than the people who are involved originally. So it can't be reversed by anyone, um, and it can't be stopped or intercepted. Uh, lots of technical reasons for that we don't need to go into, but it, it just can't be. So there's no central body at all. So to use that old expression, it's a currency 
by the people for the people. It's a little bit cheesy actually there, but it kind of works here because um, there are no governments and there are no corporations and it doesn't matter if you're the most powerful, richest person on the planet, you cannot influence this as an individual country or group, it can't be done. Uh, mathematically it's impossible, again for reasons I don't need to go into today, but because it's open source you can find out all this information if you, if you want to. It is only digital, we're used to using digital anyway, but of course we do know you can go to the cash point and withdraw cash. With Bitcoin you can't, um, technically you can, there are services that allow you to do that, but you know it'd still be your local currency, not Bitcoin. Those pictures you see of shiny Bitcoin coins and notes and all that kind of stuff, they're not real and they're made up um, so that people, like writers like me, have a picture to put in our articles. Um, they, they don't really exist, but so it only exists in a digital format. Here's the best bit though, really, I think, it is completely incorruptible by humans. In all the time that Bitcoin has existed, which is 11 and a half years now, it has never been hacked, broken, reversed, changed, corrupted. Again, it doesn't matter how powerful you are, you simply cannot do it. Um, that's not to be confused with stories you may have heard where people have um, had their Bitcoin stolen because they've done something daft, like giving their card and PIN number to someone, that happens. Um, and in the old days, exchanges were a little bit lax with their security, and so there were um, security hacks as well. So, but Bitcoin itself is incorruptible, and again, for very advanced mathematical reasons that we don't need to go into today. And that's reassuring, because it takes us humans out of the equation, because we know what we'll do with it. And finally, it's... <sighs> Disinflationary is the proper word for this. You may not know this. Obviously, we know what inflationary is. We know what deflationary is. Disinflationary is a controlled uh, amount of inflation. Again, I won't go into details here really, but if you want to show off, that's the word to use at parties, disinflationary. Um, assuming those parties are full of economists, of course. Um, the point is that there are only ever 21 million Bitcoin. That's it. There will never be any more Bitcoin ever. So if you own one, you own one of 21 million. If you own $1, just to give you some example, you own $1 of 25 trillion, 26 trillion, 27 trillion, it's changing all the time. So your dollar is going down in value, but your Bitcoin won't because it's one of only 21 million. It's also it's starting to get quite hard to get hold of Bitcoin now because in the early days, it was all over the place because it had no value. But only 18 million have been mined and it will be 120 years for the rest of those Bitcoin. The last 3 million will be fully available. Again, for very technical reasons, um, that we don't need to go into. So, you know, you think getting hold of a Bitcoin now is hard, you wait till your grandkids have a go, it'd be almost impossible. So that's where we come from. It sounds like Bitcoin's a panacea, it solves everything, oh, it's fantastic, it, 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 you know, everything, all our problems that we've identified, it solves. Well, not quite. Bitcoin is not a panacea, it has some limitations. The first one is acceptability. Now, I go back into Barbara's Coffee Shop or anyone else is here, I'll use my notes, that's fine. If I said to them, will you accept Bitcoin? They'll go, no, um, because most places don't accept Bitcoin. Some of you know that I owned a chain of internet cafes and game zones for years in the UK, and we were actually one of the very first companies to accept Bitcoin over the counter, unsurprisingly, I suppose. And I'll be honest though, the reason we did that was for PR reasons, because it was kind of cool to get some newspaper coverage. When someone come in, came in to pay with Bitcoin, which did happen, um, it was a bit of a faff to be honest with you because the process of doing it was really awkward. So, you know, we had to do the whole dance, has it gone through, has it accepted? It's, it, you know, it wasn't there. 
it is better now and there's new services coming online all the time which make this easier and easier and easier but it isn't there yet so don't expect you can just go out and spend your bitcoin wherever you want you can't technically there are ways to do this um, which we don't need to go into today i use mine all the time but that's a slightly different process but in terms of native acceptability it isn't there yet so we've got we've got a limitation there the next thing is cold coffee what i call the cold coffee problem so going back to the coffee shop um if i bought that coffee with bitcoin in its native natural form the coffee will be cold by the time that uh um, transaction is, is confirmed so this is the problem with a decentralized system right with centralized system like visa it's only going to one point so when you tap your card it'll go to one computer and it will say yes or no you can have that coffee uh, and because of that because of the big networks that are in place companies like visa can deal with tens of thousands of transactions per second bitcoin can deal with tens of transactions per second which obviously is a problem if you're trying to buy um, a coffee so at the moment bitcoin is very limited for micro payments now it's fine for things like buying a house or buying a car or making big transactions you know this is really not an issue that it might take an hour to confirm it doesn't matter but it's no good really for microtransactions. Again, there is a solution in place. It's called the Lightning Network. It's still being developed. It's in beta right now. It's been developed for a couple of years, probably a couple of years away realistically until we can use it day to day. So that is a problem that exists now, which we are aware of. The next thing really is, is remember the flying cash, how big a transition that was to get there? It probably took years to get there. This is gonna be the same. Bitcoin's biggest strength is also its biggest weakness at the end of the day. It's the reason you are here, because you've heard this thing, can't quite get your head around it. It was exactly the same for me. Don't, don't, don't think I'm any different. It's exactly the same for me. And it takes a bit of time to really understand what you're dealing with. So as a result, um, it, this, you can imagine this multiplied billions of times around the world. It will take time for this to happen. So it, it's, it's a problem. It's very much like the internet was in the 90s, actually, because um, I worked for Microsoft then. And I was, weirdly, I had a job title of internet evangelist. And um, so it's weird, 30 years ago, I've come full circle to be an evangelist again. But there was a, quite a lot of resistance to the internet back in the day. This, this is, we forget this now. Um, but uh, a lot of people say, well, why would you need it? Why would you ever buy anything online? You've got to wait for it. What? I just go to shop and buy it. Um, who's going to use it except for researching? Pfft, won't work. And yet here we are. Uh, doing this right now um, so it just goes to show how things change volatility yeah well you've probably seen bitcoins fiat price so bitcoin obviously is always equal to one bitcoin but compared to dollars and pounds it's all over the place it's ten thousand dollars and it's six thousand it's twenty thousand it's a crazy crazy volatile situation this is true because the market at the moment is very very small very small. There's only about 0.4% of the world's population use Bitcoin right now. So you can imagine anyone who buys and sells between currencies, Bitcoin, any sort of slightly larger amount either way can affect that price a lot. Over time that will settle down, but we're certainly, we're certainly not there yet. The volume, the daily volume of Bitcoin is only a few billion, which is tiny. I mean, it sounds a lot of money to us, but you know, for financial institutions, that's money down the back of the sofa kind of money. Um, so uh, for those guys, uh, it's, this is tiny. Next thing is, you know, is it legal? Is it illegal? Well, some countries decided, some haven't. In the UK, it's legal. Other countries, it isn't. There's very few have actually made it illegal, and a lot of countries actually are really embracing it. But it's still not clear in many, many 
places. So that's your limitations, but I've added this slide in because I didn't used to do this one when I first started doing it, but obviously, you know, rule books out the window now, all the economic rules that we used to adhere to have gone because COVID-19 came along and the government said, right, well, we're just, we've got fiat currency, we'll just print whatever we like because we need it now. And I don't wanna get into whether that's right or wrong because maybe there isn't much choice, but at the end of the day, they just printed it and they still are printing it now. So pretty much in America, it's unlimited quantitative easing right now. They're just printing whatever they want. Same in other countries as well. Um, and they're saying, right, well, we'll buy everything. We'll buy swaps, we'll buy funds, we'll buy bond, literally anything you want, we will buy it to support the market, uh, which is pretty handy because there's a lot of sellers. Um, and we're in this kind of weird situation now where economic stimulus is being kind of confused for economic growth. So it's very messy out there right now and certainly very dangerous. Uh, equities looking very unstable going forward. Um, but so are other assets as well. And you may remember back in March that there was this huge sell-off. When COVID really first hit, I think it was about March 26, something like that, there was a big dip of everything. Everything was sold, including Bitcoin, actually. Um, and gold, even the traditional safe haven, it was all sold. It was a rush to fiat cash. But of course, with fiat cash being produced very quickly, you can't stay in it too long because you'll lose money through inflationary pressures. But you can't save it because now we've got record low interest rates. So wherever you save it, you're always going to lose more than you have in, in value. So there's chaos going on in the markets. And as I say, as an analyst and a financial commentator, I can barely keep up with it as things moving so quickly. So it is a fascinating time, but it is very scary time because it's really so difficult to work out now where we're going. And we've kind of ended up in this weird situation now where Bitcoin was considered one of the riskier assets. But of course, because it's so stable in terms of its production and reliability, all that kind of stuff, it's kind of now the calm, cool guy in the corner saying, oh, I'm just here managing the transactions, doing stuff while there's all this noise and chaos elsewhere. And that's why we've seen narrative change quite a lot recently, particularly from institutions who up until now haven't really got involved with Bitcoin um, because it was kind of you know, the other thing. Um, but now suddenly their viewpoints have changed and we are now seeing far more positive talk about Bitcoin and institutional money coming into Bitcoin. Um, particularly in the last couple of months, actually, the numbers are, are quite impressive. But we've got a long way to go, of course. And there's no question that all of this will affect us either now or at some point in the future. There's no question about that. We know that. And the, the point is, we can't, so we've got this noisy traditional financial system. We've got this alternative new financial system. They can work together as well, of course. Um, and that's kind of where Luno comes in, the company I mentioned at the start, because it's very nice having these two systems, but how do you get from one to the other? And that's what Luno's job is, basically. They're, they are there to uh, allow a safe and stable way for moving between your traditional currencies um, to this kind of new currency format and back again. So you can, it's your gateway, if you like, between those two worlds. So what I'm going to suggest that you do today, because obviously I've, I've spoken now for 40 minutes, which is usually my maximum. I've gone a bit wordy today. I'm sorry about that. Um, but what I would suggest you do is take up this offer because it's a really generous offer from Luno um, and they really are giving away £10 worth of Bitcoin absolutely free, it, literally on their dime, so that you can learn how to use Bitcoin at least a little bit. 
Because what we found, and it was the same for me as well, is that when you explain Bitcoin to someone, it's kind of, okay, that's interesting. You say, right, now use it. It's like, oh, that's, A, I'm not quite sure how to get into that. And B, I'm a little bit nervous about, this is kind of real money, because it is real money. Don't forget, you can just change this backwards and forwards at any stage you like, so it's real money. Uh, what if I do something wrong? What if I send it wrong or delete it or something like that? Because obviously you still have lots of questions yet. So what they decided to do is say, right, well, well, we'll get rid of all of that in one hit. We'll provide a nice, easy gateway so that you can move money from fiat into Bitcoin and back again, of course, just as important. And we'll give you £10 free so that you can kind of get your nervousness used up with that £10. So if you're worried about trying a transaction or sending it, you can use the £10 which Luno are giving you to risk it. It's actually quite hard to lose Bitcoin unless you do something really stupid with it, but it, it is possible. So what I suggest you do, you can do it now while we're on, on in here if you like, and I normally suggest that we do because it's any issues, you can just message me while I'm here. So if you download the app on your phone, obviously if you watch this on your phone, you might not be able to do it right now, um, but you can do it on computer as well. And then it will ask you to um, verify at some stage. I always suggest it's easier to do it. It's the same as set up any other banking app. This is a money app after all. And usually that verification is uh, pretty instant because it uses software. So it's a photo view or a passport or something like that. You only do it once and that's it, you're set up for good. It's the same as you would for any other banking app. But once you've done that, you can then enter a code. And the way you do that, I'll give you the code now. Here we are. So um, you use the code PDUK12X. So Papa Delta Unicorn Kilo 12 X-Ray. And this will credit 10 pounds worth of Bitcoin to your wallet. Now you don't have to buy anything else. There's no other, you know, you don't have to put 10 pounds in as well or anything like that. It is a freebie gift, which I strongly suggest you take. If nothing else, it's pretty cool to say you've got some Bitcoin. And if you want to, you can just sit on it and just see what happens and come back and learn about it later. The other reason I really was very keen to get involved with Luno originally was because Luno's got a very cool learning portal. So you'll have hundreds of questions like I did, probably, and I can answer some of them now. Um, but in there is a learning portal. It, it answers a lot of questions about what does this mean? How does this work? Uh, how can I do this? So on and so forth. And there's a lot of articles in there that you can use um, to get yourself familiar with the whole process. And as I say, I put my contact details again there at the bottom because I'm very happy to talk to anyone at any time about this. I know that from events I've done in the past, lots of people have got in touch about various things. Happy to talk about it, so please don't be shy. Also, don't forget my book. If you want the um, kind of real simplified version, for either for yourself or you want to give it to someone else, that also comes with free Bitcoin if you buy it, by the way. A little tip for you there. Um, and um, basically, the way to do this is best way to understand bitcoin is to use bitcoin thanks for listening today if you've got any comments or questions on this podcast please message me on twitter at jason a dean or if you'd like to know more on the subject of bitcoin and finance in general then join me on medium.com forward slash at jason a dean don't forget the e when you're typing that in or you won't find me otherwise i'll see you next time on the bitcoin and global finance podcast